Hello, everybody, and welcome to What's the Story podcast. This is WTS 296. Far away from the big one. My name is Danny Murray. No, I'm Graham Merrigan. Merrow, how are you, my friend? Are you doing well? Yeah, very good. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great, and I'm very excited and giddy about this podcast because we we had Michael Finkel on about why six years ago. Yeah, Jesus, it wasn't been that long, but yeah, um, it, it was WTS 118, wow. October 2017. Six. How, how did Michael originally come onto your radar? So. It came onto my radar through the movie True Story, starring Jonah Hill and Dave Franco, and I look. I was like, I don't call True Story. Is it actually a True Story? Can't be a yeah. True Story. This is a True Story. So start reading a bit, and then from there, I was just ah, oh, we have to talk to this guy. We have to talk to this guy. And thankfully, all those years ago, we answered a, or an email from us. He did. He agreed. Come on, as I said, WTS one eighteen. But we got him back because he's a new book out. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever robbed anything? No. Genuinely, like not even an old, an old bar of chocolate from a shop or something. Um, when you were, even when you were a chiseler, like, do you know what I mean? You were, you were, you were pushing along, doing the shop with your man. You were like, I'll stick I think in, 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 in uh, pick a mix, I probably put more, more in it than I. You scoundrel. You scoundrel, yeah. yeah. Or do you remember in Super Crazy Prices when you used to make your own pizza, put your own toppings on it, and then you'd only put half the pizza on the wine thing to get the price of it? Nice. I like your style there. See, they stopped the, stop doing the self-service pizzas for that reason, I'd say. <laughs> I'd say so. They're probably losing a fortune on the pepperoni, you know. But, yeah. but look, listen, I've you know I've had a coffee made when I've been asked what coffee was that. I've said the cheaper option. I haven't told them it's a hazelnut latte. I've said Americano. Yeah. You know what I mean? We've all done little things like that, haven't we, Graham? Let's be honest. Where we've said, I'm going to take advantage of something. And Michael Finkel's new book, The Art Thief, is about a fella who, we're not talking innocent coffee, nicking extra toppings on pizzas kind of crime here. This man got <laughs> yeah. over 2 billion euro worth of art across a period of six years and got away with it, for the most part. So when we said, when we reached out to Michael, we, new book's coming out, I have it here in my hand. He said, I'm asking to come back on. He said he would come back on. So we said, all right, great, let's have a chat with him about it. And we were all so giddy about it that at the very start, we didn't even get to do an intro with him. We just dived straight in because, you know, that's just how it went. Um, so we pick up the conversation from here with the great Michael Finkel, who, yeah, just captured another great story, lads. Enjoy. I don't get look there. Get them all in. <laughs> US and uh, UK. Excellent. Oh, there's two different covers. Yeah, you know, um, there was a little debate. So this is like, we can have a whole cultural moment here. Like, so the U.S. cover, I'm not going to tell you which I like more. The U.S. <laughs> cover. Um, I just, I just blew, I just lost your entire audience in the first 10 seconds. Uh, there's like a, the the U.K. publishing company thought it was too weird with a bat. And this looks like maybe someone who's, he's actually sleeping, but he maybe he looks dead or post-coital. And so they went with the Netflix poster here, which by the way, there's no Netflix poster. It just looks like the Netflix poster. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that's what we got here. Uh, yeah. But we're going to talk about. The same exact words on the inside, but, you know, I, everyone judges a book by a cover. So we have very different, you know, the Atlantic Ocean couldn't accommodate the same cover, you know. We had to go well, this is it, but it's, uh, I have to say, it's uh, 
it's a lovely hardback edition. I'm uh, I'm enjoying it. I haven't finished it, but I'm I'm enjoying it. And um, yeah, it's a fascinating story, Mike. It's a fascinating story. Um, Stefan Breitweiser is. It seems like a bit of enigma to me, but you've actually sat down with him and 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 you've obviously talked to him. How? Right. Tell us first and foremost. Let's go back to the start because I'll run away at myself. <laughs> How did you first become aware of the art thief? Right. So I'm glad that you said he's an enigma because I worked on this book. Oh my God, I'm talking about inefficiency for more than 11 years. Now, it wasn't my, I did manage to make a living during those 11 years, but boy, uh, that is a long and inefficient process. And to this day, we'll get into how I, I learned about the story, but I, I think it's good that you mentioned that because I'm not sure how I feel about Brightweiser after all yeah. this time. And I like that. Like, you know, I admire the clear heroes, the freedom fighters, the people on the front lines in Ukraine, the people that are doing open heart surgery. The You know, I admire those people like a distant star. Like those aren't my people that I connect with. The people that are a little morally, you know, the criminals and the scallywags and the people that are morally, you know, unclear. I mean, those are my people. <laughs> uh, those I'm, I'm more interested in those people. And, you know, half the time I'm like, somewhat disgusted by bright visor bright wiser and the other half of the time i'm like wow that's impressive i can't help but be kind of amazed i mean who doesn't go to a museum let's just you know before we get into anything who doesn't go to a museum and see a work of art and every once in a while like whisper to the person they're with uh, it's usually my wife like honey wouldn't that look really good over our fireplace? I mean, who doesn't have that idea, right? I mean, and then we let the thought go by, but every don't even don't even <laughs> pretend that you don't think that when you're at a museum. And so this is a guy who took that thought and did it not once, not twice, not 10 times, but 300 times. So I speak French with the worst accents you've ever heard, but I speak French and I follow the French media and I just read a little bit about stuff, Stefan Breitweiser. And man, there was just three things that just grabbed my journalistic, you know, instincts, my spidey senses, just, it was like catnip for journalists. You know, we talked about the man stole 300 works of art, 200 different thefts worth 2 billion euros. 1.9 billion pounds, maybe. Um, oh, what's the pound doing these days? Anyway, <laughs> um, um, that wasn't even the reason, though, that I was attracted to the story. That's amazing. I love the way he stole, which was, we'll get into this, I'm sure, nonviolently during the day, sometimes with a guard in the room. Amazing. But that isn't even the reason why I totally fell in love with the story. It was that he stole for the love of art. And even though he had all this millions and billions of euros worth of art, he just hung them in his bedroom and admired them. He did it for love. And that sort of absolute craziness with this sort of beautifully pure ideal sort of uh, that's, I mean, that, I mean, what journalists wouldn't fall over, like, you know, in, in, in interest. And then of course you got the love stories going on. We'll talk about all this, but uh, it took He's a an ordinary decent criminal, is he Mike? Excuse me? He's an ordinary decent criminal. I mean, he's an extraordinarily decent criminal, let's say. <laughs> but yeah, I do like the fact that his, you know, when you think about art crime, you maybe think about the movie, someone blasting down through a skylight and like, yeah. you know, throwing a smoke bomb and busting out your Uzi. 
According to Breitweiser, that is a terrible way to steal art. Don't look at the movies if you want to read it. If you really, if you really want to know how to steal art, I recommend this book. I don't recommend stealing art, but if you really want to know how to get away with 200 museum thefts, wow, he spoke to me uh, about this. And again, Breitweiser believed that the best crime, and everyone, uh, all of your listeners should be taking notes now, the best crime is an invisible one, one that takes place and nobody else knows that it's happening. That's the secret to success. So it's it's interesting you say that because I had this image of, you know, like Ocean's Eleven or some sort of heist movie where like that comes down to the ceiling. There's all these laser things going across the room to trigger alarms and he's got a lot of dance moves to get around. And then the opening chapter, it just talks about how he just, you know, where's the security guard? Okay, go. And just cautiously with time and just pick this moment. And it, it, it's incredible. Like, I'm I'm, a, I'm hooked into it based on that a lot. I was like, hang on, this guy's doing this in plain sight. If somebody walks by, they could, and doesn't phase him. I mean, Danny, I had the same thought as you. Like, I'm, uh, for some reason, exactly what you said. There's always like red lasers in my mind. <laughs> I, I don't know why. Is that like a rule of movies? You have to have red lasers. Anyway, um, Breitweiser's only stealing tool was a Swiss Army knife that he kept in his pocket. But his real tools, the ones that are much harder to teach and much sort of more subtly effective than those laser beams, is this sort of ability to read human psychology and for example uh just briefly i'll go through one of the crimes that i love you know so you see these like um display boxes in museums and they're usually bolted shut with a very modern lock like it would take even if even if you could pick a lock it would take you hours there's just no way to get into that lock brightweiser out thought this you know those cases which are made out of um plexiglass or tempered glass they're fused at their edges with silicon glue he just took the sharpest knife sharpest blade of his swiss army knife and like using a surgeon's cut vertically and horizontally would loosen those panels just enough so he could wiggle a hand through grab like an amazingly multi-million dollar say ivory sculpture wiggle it out then push the panels together they would just stay there stick back together in their original position oh yeah before that he would take a ballpoint pen his other big tool and sort of rearrange the stuff in the cabinet to make it look like it hadn't been touched stick the object at the small of his back and walk never run slowly out of a museum never touching this lock uh so one time he's in a museum and he you know so brightweiser i mentioned stole for the love of mm -hmm. art he told me multiple times that if you really need money there's easier ways to make money than breaking into museums but he was in love with the objects he stole and so he just wouldn't steal willy-nilly or anything he saw he had to really have what he called a coup de coeur in French, a hit of the heart. He really had to be passionate about it. And briefly, he saw one of these display cases in a museum, a huge one in Belgium, like a Louvre-sized museum. And it didn't have pieces he liked in it, but it had a couple of gaps in it, some weird gaps. And he thought, oh my goodness, a, a thief has already been through here and didn't do the rearranging bit. But So he went up to this case and inside the case, he saw a bent index card that said in French on it, objects removed for study and he had this brilliant idea and he does the silicon slice and all he steals from that case is the index card 
pushes the case backs together, goes into another gallery with these amazing Renaissance 17th and 16th century silver goblets and amazing beer tankards and does the silicon slice, pulls a couple of pieces out and instead of rearranging it, just sticks that card right in the case, closes it up, puts it behind his back, up his sleeve, girlfriend's purse, walks out to his car. They drive away. He has this thought. What if two days later they go back to the museum? No one has reported this theft. Every, guards, authorities in the museum, they all just see this card. Like, it must have been, must have been objects removed for study. He goes back to the case, takes more out, leaves the card in the middle, goes back to his car, thinks, really? A week later, goes back to the museum, still no one's reporting it, clears out the case. We're talking tens of millions of dollars worth of art. Goes home and he told me in one of our interviews, the greatest art thieving tool of all time is a folded in half index card. <laughs> so it seems completely implausible. It just seems like... You know, it's just, it's not what we've been conditioned to believe is how you, you steal things of extreme value. Right. I want to stress before we go any further that this book isn't based on a true story. It's not 99% true. It's 100% true. This is one of those, you know, the cliche, this truth is stranger than fiction, but you're totally right. If this was fiction, you would just throw it across the room and be like, no one could believe this. This would never really happen. And so, you know, I not only interviewed Breitweiser for mm -hmm. More than 40 hours, you know, I interviewed all the police officers that chased him, the lawyers that prosecuted him and defended him. I got he gave me signed permission crazily to read his psychology reports. I double and triple checked everything, went to museums. And so as crazy as the stories that I'm telling you sound, they're all completely true. He was sort of this like, I don't know how you are, uh, but me, I like starts if I took a candy bar, I would just start sweating and just be completely, you know, unable to I would get caught. He just when, had the ability. Yeah, when I, when I was six years of age, I robbed a Kit Kat from the local Tesco, and I'm still paranoid to go back to that Tesco. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm with you, but Kit Kat's not a bad choice. One of my favorites, actually. So. <laughs> how <laughs> so did you come on taste. your radar, Mike? Excuse me how did I, how did I find out about Breitweiser? Yeah how how was how did he become how did he come on your radar? Yeah, so I um you know to work on my bad French, uh, I always I often read the French media, and I did come across a little report on this guy again with just mentioning like three brief things oh 200 thefts which by the way is possibly the most prolific not possibly i did a during the pandemic all i did all those books behind me are art history books and art thieving books nobody in all of history in the 350 years that museums have existed i think have stolen from more than 20 different museums if you don't count like armies like the Nazis. He, this guy's more than 200. So there's no even second place. So it's that crazy quantity. It's that sort of crazily endearing way that he did it without violence mm -hmm. and the sort of the love of the girlfriend, his assistant and the love of the art, you know, that's really just, that's journalistic catnip right there. Kind of uh, like the, kind of like the British empire with uh, international <laughs> museums. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a line in there about, you know, so Bright Brightweiser himself liked to tell me, oh, I'm not really an art thief. He never liked to be called an art thief. Mm -hmm. um, art thieves are people that hate art. You know, maybe you think about the famous Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist in Boston in the United States. Those guys, art thieves, by the way, hate art. Those guys in Boston stuck a knife. Not only did they, first of all, they attacked the guards. 
you know, handcuffed him to pipes in the basement, terrorized him, did it at night, then stuck a knife in a Rembrandt and cut the thing out of the frame, which is ruining this Rembrandt. Bright, Brightweiser did not like to be called an art thief. He liked to be called, seriously, an art collector with an unorthodox acquisition style. <laughs> I like and I it. think I like mentioned, it. right, because he would say, like, Graham, I think you just mentioned it. He's like, well, what does the British Museum have? What are the most famous things in the British Museum? Let's go with the uh, Rosetta Stone, a uh, stolen from Egypt. Let's go with, you know, the Benin bronzes. A stolen from Benin, you know, and, and of course, the, you know, the part, the things from the Parthenon in Greece, just stolen from, a, you know, it's, you know, this is just the most famous museum in the world filled with stuff that the, that the uh, empire has stolen. And so he, you know, of course, I'm being somewhat facetious, but he's not wrong. There's lots of thieving in the history of art. And he felt like he was just another one of them. Brilliant. I'm fascinated as well. But so for, for, for context for people, this all occurred kind of the, the mid 90s to, 2001 so right. people are probably going cctv there was a camera so it's you know it's not where it is now but you mentioned the girlfriend and i said i'm i'm, I'm still early days in the book but she seems like she's integral to this guy did, okay, did you get this okay go yeah. on come. Yeah, yeah, no, thanks for bringing that. First of all, uh, yeah, so Brightweiser was born in 1971. So this, I'm not talking about something that happened 100 years ago, but you're right. The majority of his crimes took place in the late 80s, late 90s, sorry, and early zeros. Um, but to this day, smaller museums are ridiculously underprotected. Um, I love museums. And, I, you know, although I speak with some joy about Brightweiser's craziness, I mean, this is not something I can endorse. I mean, we can, yeah. we, I think we could probably talk for a week about the problems of modern society, but museums, including the British museums, aren't one of them. I assume that just looking at the, your background, neither of you guys are billionaires. I know I'm not a billionaire. Uh, so we could go, I don't even know if a million, let's, let's just leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> not billionaire, so we just all agree to that. Um, and, I mean, we get to go and see some of the most valuable works of art in the world but by paying a few dollars to uh, uh, go to a museum. I mean, they're the, one of the great things in, in in public society. But the mission of a museum isn't, you know, the Mona Lisa isn't behind bars. The, the It's to be as open as possible, which leaves you prone to stealing. And Breitweiser took advantage of that. Now, he didn't do it alone. As you mentioned, he had a girlfriend. And this is like one of the things that I love about this story, because you can talk about crime after crime, but there's a heart, I believe, in this story and in this book, which he fell in love with a girl. And no matter how unhealthy this relationship seems, everybody that I talked to that knew them, you know, they all said, oh, my God, worst relationship of all time. But they loved each other. And you guys know that love can make you crazy. And together, Brightweiser and his girlfriend, her name was Anne-Catherine Kleinklaus. Breitweiser and Anne-Catherine were like this accidentally perfect Bonnie and Clyde. They, she served as lookout, sort of magician's assistant, diverting people away, warning with, <coughs> she would do this like subtle cough at the entrance if a guard was coming. They had this by, without practice, by just natural, crazy good fortune, they became like the perfect art stealing team and filled up their bedroom with a couple of billion dollars worth of art. And, and also in the middle of it all, let's just think about this, this amazing four poster bed. And so there's a little sexiness involved too. I mean, what do you, what most do you want to do after you steal something worth a couple of million dollars? You want to put it in your bedroom and roll around with your girlfriend, don't you? I mean, it's kind of nice. <laughs> well, there, there is, there, there's a lot of art out there that's quite erotic, isn't there? So, I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, it sets the mood, it sets the mood. Um, the, 
the other funny thing about all this, and I think you touched on it earlier, is like this wasn't he wasn't doing this to sell this and make profit and, and become rich. He he was living in his mom's house, like. <laughs> I mean, it just gets crazier, right? So Brightweiser was a full-time art thief, which in other words means he didn't have a job. <laughs> and he didn't steal anything. I mean, he didn't sell. I mean, 99% of art thieves do it for the money. He did it for hanging in his room to make love with his girlfriend amongst um, he did it out of passion. And I know this because I spent so many hours with him, went to museums, saw his passion. And you reminded me when I was even talking about this stuff, you mentioned about sexiness, like all like morality and moral grayness aside. And of course, what what Bright Riser did was wrong, but my time with him really changed the way I look at art. And I really loved, he was like the best professor I could ever have because he was not like any college professor at all. I've It's changed the way I, I look at art and I try, I hope that anybody who reads the book gets changed. But, but in a nutshell, like when you look at a work of Renaissance art, for example, not my favorite, I usually like something more modern, but you know, and you're in a museum or you're reading, a, you're, you're in a class or there's a tour guide, everybody gets all intellectual. Oh, look at this, you know, color palette and this balance of pose and this, you know, this framing device and this symbolism and this. Wait a minute. Get rid of all of that. Look with an open mind. What are you going to see? You can see boobies. You can see penis. People are naked. It's sexy. There's, look at those muscles. Look at that flowing hair. I mean, Adam and Eve just sort of grabbing at each other. You know what's going to happen next. These painters did not paint in the Renaissance era because they wanted you to talk about the fine balance of form and this is symbolism. You know, there was no Playboy magazine back then. They, they were erotic. And Brightweiser was able to tap into that. And it's like, change, like, don't get all intellectual. You know, if you see boobies in a painting that's the first thing you see let's just be honest we're guys here i mean come on like by denying that you're sort of denying half the pleasure like that's what the artist wanted you to see it was usually pretty much a horny male artist anyway that did it so it's like i mean i'm big i'm making jokes but i'm being really serious that we've sort of forgotten how to look at art like only people under 10 years old know how to really look at art and brightweiser was extremely well educated read book after book but when he encountered works he let all that bs go and opened himself up to it i mean scenes of, i was talking about sexy stuff but scenes of war are as horrifying as anything you've ever seen, depictions of hell should make you like freak out. And it does when you look at it that way. And so I know I've been a little long-winded here, but I really want all of your listeners to like, next time you go to a museum or encounter something, try and drop all that BS and look at it as if you were, or even go with a child better yet and see, and they'll be like boobies. You know, it's great. <laughs> it's, uh, to be fair, anywhere I go with Merlot, that's usually the response. So, I mean, yeah. But uh, <laughs> um, you, you mentioned over 40 hours of interviews with this guy. T tell us a little bit about the first time you met him. So uh, this project took me forever. Um, I, I read about him like in, in the French media. I called up a French journalist friend of mine and she told me the magic words. She's like, this guy's not going to speak to any journalists. I'm like, you know, I'm competitive. I'm like, game on. We spent the inefficiencies of this project are just Nobody, nobody should work like I do. I just can't believe how inefficient I freaking am. I, I wrote letters back and forth to Brightweiser before we met for four years. And they got it gradually. I mean, I did other, 
I managed to make a living on the side, but you know, I even wrote a whole other book, but very gradually got more friendly. And then finally, after four years, he agreed to meet me for lunch. And even then I couldn't bring a pen or a recorder. He just wanted to meet me. And I guess my terrible French charmed him or something like that. But he eventually agreed to give me interviews and we spoke, spent more than 40 hours together. We did these road trips uh, to museums from which he stole that he sort of banned from. He put on these light disguises. Walking through a museum with the world's greatest art thief is one of the craziest mind screwers of all time. I'm, I'm just, I, I was fascinated. He showed me like his way of looking at art, but then not only would he do that, uh, that style that I just mentioned, you know, open-mindedness, but then he would look at the back and talk about how it was attached to the wall and how he might unhook it and where he might hide the frame and how we might escape from the museum. I'm like, what am I going to do here if he takes a piece off the wall? Like, uh, you know, and I was luckily, luckily did not, uh, did not have to make a decision. But I mean, there was like, you kind of get, I bet you guys can imagine this. You kind of get into the mode where you're like, oh my God, like, let's take this and put it up over the, over the mantelpiece. Maybe just one night, just one night. And then I'll give it back to the police. But like, I got into the whole excitement mode of it all. And it was sort of contagious. <laughs> you did. So was there a risk he was going to take something while you were there? <laughs> I mean, let me be honest, boys. He stole a catalog from the gift shop uh, of the museum and I watched him do it and I didn't say anything. I was I was like, all right, I'll let him get away with that. But uh, I was told a, I told a lawyer I was interviewing uh, that story and he says, you know, that makes you complicit. So you're technically guilty of a crime most. And I was like, ah, let's not mention that. <laughs> Classic lawyer, absolute killjoy. Oh, oh yeah, ruining ruining the good times always. <laughs> um, you know, so outside of the the, the catalogue though, did did he ever did he ever show you kind of you know here's here's how you do this, or did he ever give it? You know, I'm I'm glad you asked that. So because he's somewhat Brightwise or somewhat well known in the Alsace region, which is northeastern mm -hmm. France, where he is from, he wanted to do the uh, interviews in a private spot, and I I rented a hotel room and those French hotel rooms could be quite, quite small, like a walk-in closet. There's only one chair in the room. I remember he sat in the chair. I sat in the luggage rack. We put this tiny little desk between us and I had my laptop. I just pushed it on the side of the desk in case he would make a reference to an artist that I wasn't familiar with. I always liked to see it. And, but I put that to the side and I remember saying to Stefan, you know what I really don't understand is how you're able to steal something like right under like not only were tourists in the room sometimes when he stole, but actually guards were in the room. And I'm like, ah, you tell me that story. I read the police reports, but I can't get my head around it. Now, when I do an interview, I like to look people in the eye and let my recorder capture the conversation. It's just more personal that way. But every once in a while to take a note, like a facial thing or, you know, write about your hairdo or the stuff that's behind you, I'll, I'll put my head down and take a few notes about your gestures or something. So in the middle of a line of questioning, about not understanding how you can steal while people are in the room. He stopped the interview and he said, well, did you see what I just did? And I always like games like this, especially with intelligent criminals. I'm like, oh, I'm going to play this. I'm like, uh, no, Stefan, what'd you just do? He said, look around the room. Now, we talked before about how we're not doing laser beams and Uzis, but it's sort of like psychological manipulation and I'm as embarrassed as I am to admit this. It's true about humans. Like we notice like the presence of something. Like if suddenly there was a Christmas tree in my hotel room, I would notice it right away. But the absence of something is a little more difficult to notice. And Stefan says, look around. And I admit that I'm I'm a little embarrassed to admit this. I said to him, Stefan, I, 
I don't know what you're talking about. And he stood up from this tiny little thing, little hotel room, turned around, lifted up my, his shirt, and my laptop computer was at the small of his back. I must have lowered my eyes for three or four seconds to take a note. And during that time, he grabbed the computer, put it there, and sat down in front of his desk and put his hands in the exact same position. And I just hadn't noticed it. And that moment in my hotel room, it's not in the main part of the book because I didn't put myself in it, crystallized sort of in the most visceral way. I was like, oh my God, I know how you can steal now. And it was like, it was the most powerful moment maybe of all our 40 hour interviews was just that little moment. And uh, to this moment, to this day, I'm like, wow, man, that was impressive. I would, I would never be able to do that. That is mental. That, that's incredible. It's, um, you, you mentioned as well that you're still not 100% sure how you feel about the guy, which is which yeah. is great. But when you were interviewing the lawyers, the police officers, what was their general? Were they like this fucking guy? Or what What did they feel about him? You know, when you get to be like such an outlier, I mentioned nobody else had stolen from more than 19 museums. This guy, mm -hmm. 200. It's kind of funny. I think... Like, say, so, you know, you start out the interview with the police officers, like, this guy, this guy's a, you know, cancer on society. And then you're like talking about some of his crimes and you can watch like the police officer's eyes like, man, that was pretty impressive. And even like the lawyer, I'm putting him to jail for life. And they're like, wow, man, 200 works of art. Did you see that home video of the room? I'm like, yeah, I saw the home video of the room. It's like, it's like, I would. It was like living inside a treasure chest. Imagine sleeping a night with $2 billion of stolen treasure all around you. Like he had this beautiful bed in the middle of this room. So it's, I kind of like the fact that you can't help be impressed while also be disgusted. Like if you're looking for a book, readers, that is just about a hero, flawless hero, you know, I got, I got to say, you got to look elsewhere. But if you want someone who's complicated and morally bereft and yet impressive, like if you want a twisty turny ride, this is what, this is the story you want. And I really, I don't know how you guys feel, but I don't like someone telling me how to feel about someone. So that's the reason why I step back. I'm giving you all of Brightweiser's story, the good, the bad, the crazy, the ugly. And as uh, you said, the mental great word um, <laughs> and let you readers decide well, how you feel about Brightweiser, like them, hate them, somewhere in between, or does it change at every moment? I kind of, I kind of, that's the characters I like to read about, and uh, maybe you will too. That's it. And then I suppose, and I'm kind of running out of time, but ultimately, like all criminals, they come a cropper eventually. What was his downfall? I mean, I consider this like an Icarus story, the guy in myth who flew too close to the sun <laughs> and his wax wings melted. I don't think anyone flew higher or took more crazy risks than Brightweiser. And the higher you fly, the harder you're going to crash. And after 201 crimes, 300 pieces, 2 billion euros, he finally does get caught. And the crash, let's leave a little bit of mystery for the readers, but the crash is one of my, what makes this story spin into outer orbit it is, he everything in his life comes crashing down in the most dramatic way possible. In fact, I don't think anyone listening is going to guess this. I think I earn two U.S. dollars per book. Any of you re listeners out there, guess what happens to the art before you get there? You send me an email. Go to my website, mikefinkel.com. I'll owe you two dollars. I mean, it is just an incredibly uh, unexpected and heart-shattering ending. And I'll leave it like that. I hope I'm not being too teasy, but well, I love it fun to get there 
Will we get to see it in the big screen, Mike? Well, great. Uh, this is brand new news. I just sold the rights to the book. Just literally like the contract has just yeah. been signed. And so Excellent. the answer to that question is maybe uh, <laughs> I speak better. <laughs> I speak better French than I speak Hollywood, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so uh, don't hold your breath. And this is not an excuse for any of you readers to say, oh, I'll just wait for the movie. So uh, never wait for the movie. Everyone get the book. Yeah, and, <laughs> read the book now and see the movie in a couple of years. But uh, I mean, come on, what a great story! Wouldn't this be fun to watch on the screen? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is, is, you, you always have uh, all the times we've spoken to you. You've always had something next, you know, in in project wise. Uh, what are you going to unearth next for us? Oh, I'm so happy that you asked this. Almost no one does. So you know, I, I as I said at the beginning of the show, like I mean, my people are the criminals. I uh, I'm working on another story. Remember those airplane hijackers from like the 1970s in the United States? You're thinking like D.B. Cooper, but this is a real one who got a million dollars in cash and hijacked a plane from the United States, got to Algeria and disappeared for 40 years and lived this perfectly law abiding life before getting captured by the police. And so it's a story not about this, also about this person's life, but also asking the larger questions, you know, is redemption possible? Can someone change? Or you just really hijack red heart and you're pretending not to be. And I'm going to answer all those questions in my next project. And I can't wait to talk to you boys about it. Amazing. Absolutely cannot wait. Uh, Michael Finkel. Will you have me on again? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. It's it's always a pleasure. And we left it far too long this time around. But anyone who didn't listen to the original episode, just go check out Michael's website. As you said, michaelfinkel.com. Stranger in the Woods is one of the most just fascinating reads I've ever encountered. True story, now a major motion, major motion picture. Incredible. Just, I, I still, still all these years later, can't wrap my head around how that happened, by the way. I still, you know. Um, but, but Mike, it's interesting because our, our podcast was eight years old last week. And wow. when, I, when I talk to people in in the in the bars or in, in the local pub or shops and stuff, and they always ask me, how's the podcast going? And they always ask me what was your favorite episode, and then when I in turn ask what was your favorite episode, expecting sometimes for him to say, "Oh, George Foreman was pretty interesting," or "So and so was pretty interesting," but more times than not, everyone says that Mike Finkel one was excellent, and yeah. they, they, they've they've led to reading your books and buying your books, and you mm. you really went down a a great treat with with our listeners anyway. So thank you for that. My pleasure. I hope everybody reads The uh, Art Thief, but even more, hey, if I'm over there, can I come into that bar and share a pint with you guys? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you, I you, look forward to that day. You cross the Atlantic, you let us know, man. We'll be happy to host you and have a point with you. Um, but That sounds wonderful. Un- until then, Michael Finkel, thank you so much. Uh, congratulations on a great book, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting through the rest of it. Really fun talking with you, as always, to be continued. Thank you, Michael. Totally enjoyed that, man. It's just so interesting and, and the subjects of his books, he always finds, I don't know how he finds them, but they're, it's, it's just excellent. Like, And I know you look at when he was talking about it and the story of it, you kind of do want to see it on the big screen, but mm. I understand he's an author and he wants everyone to buy the book. So everyone do buy the book, but yeah. and that in a few years time and that becomes on the, on the big screen, it'll be like True, True Story was a great watch. Yeah. So uh, I'd say that'd be a great watch too. It's- and he's an absolute gentleman. Yeah, gen- generally, yeah. Check out michaelfingle.com um, and do do genuinely like I'm. I said to tomorrow there a couple minutes ago. I'm fifty odd pages into this, and I'm absolutely loving it. I reckon I'll be finished it by the end of the week. Well, 
we're recording this and it's going out a little bit late. Anyway, I'll, in, in a few days, I'll be finished up, I reckon, because it is, as as the cliche goes, unputdownable, Mero. And do, um, you, do you piss through books? Oh, no, it would be like sort of a week or two on a book. Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't, I wouldn't be one of those people who I pick it up on a Monday and I'm finished by a Wednesday, like, you know? Yeah, or there's, I know some people who, like, ha- dr- uh, read three books at a time. No, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. No. Um, I, I, I like to have a book and I like to, you know, chip away at it, chip away at it. And if, if you know, not all books are great. You know, there's some books you get four or five chapters in, you're like, no, no, I know this isn't for me. That's fine. Sorry. Do you still read your classical history books and all? Yeah, yeah. Badly. History books probably thing I read most man. Um big fan of them. Um I think I've read about like 20, 30 books on pretty much the same topic in the Roman Empire, but I don't care. Love it. Everyone yeah. has a different take on it, you know, which is weird. But yeah. Um I'm sorry, but I was trying to say a second ago and then I lost track of everything and I was there waffling. Um uh, you you said it there that you know he he has a, a knack of finding these interesting people, and even even more so than that, he has a knack of getting them to talk to him. Yeah, which in all the stories, you know, but both true story and the stranger in the woods, you know, loads of journalists tried to speak to these guys. Loads of journalists failed, but yeah. there's something about Mike and his demeanor and how he does things that. People do decide, yeah, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to open up to you. And thank God, because these stories are fucking great. Like, you know, uh, I, I still want to see Stranger in the Woods in the movie. Like, yeah, do you know, like, I mean, that that one did. Just, yeah, just go back and listen. WTS 118, lads. You'll find it. It's on Apple and uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I, I, I think if you listen to this one straight after it, if you haven't listened to 118, you'll probably go back to it because, yeah, yeah, it's, it's absolutely, it's, it's, it's funny as much as it is bafflingly interesting. Like incredible, yeah. yeah, and, yeah. But, but I suppose the, the the point being, and this is what was so happy as well. You asked him what's next mm. because if if he keeps unearthing these people the way he does, <laughs> oh, so, yeah, yeah. so next up is uh, a hijacker who <laughs> vanished for forty years and then event like yes, bring it on, Mike, bring it on, Mike. Um, but yeah, that's it for this week, lads. Uh, as I said, the book is The Earth Thief. It is available uh, everywhere. It's available online, michaelfingle.com, uh, bookshops, good and bad, indifferent, the whole lot. But uh, keep an eye out for it. Highly recommend it. And uh, yeah, give, give them a follow on social media as well. Let them know what you think. Mero, if uh, people want to listen to WTS 118 and all the other WTSs that have been there over the last eight years, how can they do so? They can go to WTSpod.com or you can search WTSpod on any podcast provider. Podbean, Podcast Republic, um, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere, everywhere you can get a podcast. Just search WTSpod. He's at Danjo Murray on the socials. I'm at Merrigan Mania and uh, we'll talk to you again. Clear eyes. Absolutely, full hearts. Can't lose. Too sweet. Too sweet.